It is great to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'm going to bounce around just a little bit this morning, which is maybe different than the norm. But I want to share from my heart what I think is a spiritual and scriptural emphasis for our church as we move forward through this year. Let me read what I had read earlier this week. God never intended for any believer to follow him in isolation or in private. He designed followers of Christ to thrive in community through the body of the church. Christians should reach out and serve others in the church. The enemy, the adversary, however, he concluded, does his best to separate believers from each other. And there is a myriad of tactics that the adversary employs to create separation in that which God intended to be unified. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there is a sharp contrast as God himself assesses his creation. Because he looks at creation in the process, and his divine assessment is that it is good. And then there is a contrasting tone when he creates man, and he says this in Genesis 2.18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. That is a contrasting assessment from every other thing up to that point. It is good. It is good. It is not good. That's God's assessment that man should be alone. To rectify the situation there for mankind, God creates Eve. And in doing so, he establishes the institution of marriage. The companionship that exists within marriage. But I believe, generally speaking, it also points to the goodness of human community in general. Human companionship, according to God's divine assessment. Even as we look at the world without the lens of Scripture, we see that there is something good about community. When you study the Bible, you cannot escape the New Testament addressing in letter form churches individually. And there is a phrase, a series of words, two to be exact, one another, that the writers use over and again. You might even, as a student of the Bible, call them the one another passages. In Romans 12, 15, we read, rejoice with one another. In Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. In Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another. In James 5.16, pray for one another. In Galatians 6.2, carry one another's burdens. All through the New Testament, these one another passages exist. Can I say that it is impossible to forgive or pray or lift up one another without Being together? If I were to say it bluntly, the point here is that I can't be a fully devoted follower of Jesus if I am not loving, forgiving, 
bearing the burdens of and serving those within the body of Christ. Life is to be lived with one another, scripturally speaking, together. Maybe the best way for me to say it is summed up by Solomon in the Old Testament. Solomon is endued with divine wisdom. God gifted him supernaturally to be wise. As he pins scripture, we know from the New Testament that he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so here we have an exceedingly wise man inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen some words of wisdom to us. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he will summarize by saying to us, together is better. Now as he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, listen in as I read from these verses. Now Solomon, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now Solomon is a bit melancholic. Seems a bit of a downer in his assessment of humanity and the condition of life. But he's telling us something important in these first few verses. He is telling us that oppression and loneliness make life exceedingly hard. Two times over, he speaks of loneliness, isolation, individuals who had no comfort, no vindication, no justice, no hope, no external help for them. He goes so far as to say it would be better to have never been born than to have to endure life in that condition. Isolation is destructive. I mean, whether married or single, young or old, we were never meant by God to experience life alone. You can read all kinds of books on making friends. How many of you are great at making friends? Just just one person. That's not... Good, that indicates you've not made any friends. Dale Carnegie wrote much about this. Here's something that he wrote. He said a generation ago, you can make more friends in two months by showing interest in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. He went on and said, the truth is, the enemy, speaking of the adversary, the devil, has not stopped since Eve and her temptation until today in attempting to isolate people from one another, to pull you away and bring you down, to convince us to wait on someone else to take the initiative and throw the ball. It can happen in marriage, in the business world, in the family, and certainly in the church. The devil is good at making us feel like nobody understands us and we are an island unto ourselves. And the more that I live life and watch humanity from the viewpoint of a pastor, I grasp that most people feel like they just don't fit in anywhere. 
And then we're good at isolating ourselves from others within our awareness. I'm just more spiritual than other people. I'm just less spiritual than other people. I just live different than other people. Nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. The enemy is good at making us, even within a setting such as this, feel isolated and alone. And Solomon, viewing life with the perch of divine wisdom and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to us, we are better together. Listen to what he writes in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Now he's coming to a conclusion. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You can go through life like a maverick. You can go through life isolated. You can float above the system. But it is not as God intended for you to navigate life. Together is better. That's what Solomon is saying. Now again, I can't elevate his viewpoint, his opinion enough. It's inspired and he's really wise. He says together is superior. Together is worth pursuing. Together is follow this advice, chase it down, togetherness. Why would I want to be together with other people? Well, number one, he says this in verse nine, two are better than one because... They have a good reward for their labor. Two is better because of increased productivity. I am getting older and I'm becoming more high maintenance in my old age. I hate, I hate leaf season. Does anybody join me in that hate for leaf season? Man, man do we have trees. Leaves fall all over the yard and you get them cleaned up and sometimes as you're cleaning them up, they're falling and it's just 11 to 13 weeks of misery. And they hang over our house, they fill my gutters and they sit in the little valleys and holes on the roof. And about once a year, I take it upon myself to go on the roof of my home to clear the leaves off. It's not smart, it's dangerous, I encourage the early service, I'll tell you the church does have a key man policy on me so that if something were to happen to me on my roof, you'd probably build phase two really quickly. It may direct how you pray. (laughs) Climbing the roof was once easy, but now that I am advancing in age, it's becoming a little more cumbersome. As I was climbing the roof, Just a little bit ago, I said to my wife, I need you to come out and hold the ladder. Now, that is really trusting someone. Because if anyone has reason for me to want to slip off the roof, it is Christy. (laughs) She was holding the ladder, and I thought, I'm going to be smarter this year than other years. Instead of going up there with just a battery-powered blower, which is easy to handle and climb the ladder with, I'm going to go ahead and put my backpack blower on. And I'm going to climb the ladder and get on the roof with my backpack blower. And I'm going to go up the edge of the roof like Spider-Man. I'm going to lay on my belly and I'm going to clear the whole roof off with leaves. This is going to be a good thing. I got off the ladder and down on the deck where my wife was standing, I said, clear out for a second. And I took the blower and I blew what I think is probably 84 oak trees worth of leaves down onto the deck. 
piles of wet, disgusting, heavy leaves. I looked over the edge and I saw that pile of leaves on the deck and I honestly thought, I hate my life. I know why people just moved to condos in Florida. Because they don't have these wicked things. When I got down off the ladder, I started the miserable process of clearing the deck and getting those wet leaves down onto the ground and then off the top of the bushes and out of the mulch and onto a tarp to drag the tarp down into the woods all by myself, feeling isolated and miserable. And as I was working, I saw my wife, like the cavalry had arrived, come around the side of the house in her work clothes. And she said to me, I could not watch you. Do this by yourself. And I thought, that's interesting because there's 11 weeks of this. You watch me do it alone a lot. But on this particular day, she arrived to help me clear leaves. And our son happened to be home from college. And he pulled his car into the driveway. And though he would have been merciless on me, he saw his mother out there dragging leaves. And he came down and he helped us. And as we cleared the leaves, I got to stand there with the blower and just act like I had stuff to do while they raked and drugged the tarp. And the leaves were done. And I said to them two words that are hard for me to say Thank you. You saved me hours of time because I increased my productivity because we did this together. Now, I lingered on it. So next time, if we did this together, all 11 weeks, think of how much time we'd save. Now, Solomon is actually a genius, though this is not really a genius assessment. Two is better than one. Because we have increased productivity. When we live in isolation, we never reach our potential. There's motivation and help that comes from being on a team. In Proverbs 27, 17, he says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, talking about the church, writes this in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us, that is a word of togetherness, consider one another, it's a one another passage, to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now as COVID hit, those verses were referenced a lot. We've got to assemble, we've got to assemble, we've got to assemble. But we don't assemble for the mere sake of assembly. We neglected to emphasize what is emphasized within that passage. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. We're together in this place right now for the sake of provocation. You're not here to take in an incredibly articulate and eloquent message. That's not why you're here. It's happening. That's not why you're here. This is a provocation. This is a divinely inspired method that God tells us to employ, to provoke one another unto love and good works. You are here to provoke somebody to love and to good works. As we conclude that passage, he says, exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day of Jesus Christ's return approaching. This is a hard world to live in. This world beats us down. Everybody that you know is stressed. Everybody that you know is fatigued. Discouragement waits to meet us every morning and hangs around for the evening. We've got to exhort each other. 
Together is better because of increased productivity and the encouragement that comes along with it. Find somebody to exhort. It also brings increased comfort in verse 10. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Now I have learned something about myself that is probably true about all of us. That's when we're down, we tend to withdraw. I'm often at my worst when I choose to live in isolation. When I just step into my own world. Now, I happen to believe that solitude is necessary. Solitude is restful. Solitude is helpful. But isolation is destructive. In fact, isolation is often Indicative of the fact that I've not had enough solitude. I just step away from everybody into my own world. That is not God's intended method. We, if we go back to the first few verses where Solomon says there were some that had no comfort, he comes back and he says, look, the day might come where you fall flat on your face and it's good to have somebody help you up again. In verse 11, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? You know that Jesus was telling the disciples in John chapter 14 this, I will not leave you alone, but I will come to you. And he gifts the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not near the believer. The Holy Spirit is in the believer. He indwells the believer. And he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The reality is nobody is ever truly alone if they have Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's always the Holy Spirit. But there's increased comfort together. There is increased potency together. Verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two and three. Hold on to those two words for just a second. Two and three. What he is using here in verse 12 is a word picture. He's telling us about a survival situation in an attack. I mean, if someone were to come into this room with ill intent, I would prefer to not be in here alone. I would rather it be two against one and really prefer it be three against one. It increases my odds of survival. That's simply what Solomon is doing. There's going to come a time in your life where you're under attack spiritual or otherwise. And when the attack comes, you don't want to be like the individual who is alone. You want to have two or three or 30 or 40. In other words, one friend is good when you're under attack. Two is better and 102 is probably best. Too many people expect everyone to rally when hardship arrives, even though they have lived isolated. Well, when the attack comes, then I'll just jump back into the group and everybody will rally and everybody will be there for me. There's a problem with that thinking. When the devil attacks, he doesn't call ahead to see if you're ready. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. All of his attacks are surprise attacks. We always do better when we live life prepared. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Together is better. 
Two is good. Three is even better than two. And we can, of course, follow the line of thinking down. Together is better. You were not intended from creation's design to live life in isolation or alone. Life was meant to be lived together. Christian community is God's design. As hard as that is for some of us to wrap our minds around, it is the intention of God. Now, I said a moment ago, That two is good and three is better. Those two words that we held on to reappear in the New Testament when we read in Matthew 18, 20, for when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He is beginning now to point us to the church. And in Ephesians chapter 2, which I believe is an important passage of Scripture for us, a key passage of Scripture for us for the year ahead, Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus and he is driving them to the reality that together is truly better. Now I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I read from Ephesians chapter 2. Listen in as Paul is writing and he begins with two words that indicate transition. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain of two one new man so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, I appreciate your patience in listening to Paul outline the unity that exists for believers in the church at Ephesus. Now, we're not going to take the time to do it, but in the early part of this letter, he is breaking down some theological realities. He is saying you are without Christ. You were without citizenship. You were without covenants. You were without hope. You were without God. But now, in verse 13, in Jesus Christ, those things are no longer true. You have Christ. You have citizenship in an eternal place. You have covenants in the sense the covenants were made to the Jewish nation and to Abraham and to David, but now we can be sons of Abraham through Jesus Christ. We who were hopeless now have hope. We who had no access to the true God now do through Jesus. Now in Christ, we who were strangers and aliens and foreigners have all been made one. He even uses specific language in here. He's intentional about it. In effect, he has taken two and made one. Jesus has made a third race, the Christian race, as it were, citizens of heaven. And in that, we are all together members of the same family. 
Jesus broke the wall down. Paul repeated the word one throughout there intentionally. In verse 15, one new man. In verse 16, one body. In verse 18, one spirit. In verse 19, one nation and one family. We are nothing without Christ. Together. That's the word of Ephesians 2. It is very intriguing to study this out and to understand what is being communicated. Together with Christ appears early in Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in sins, we are quickened together with Christ. By grace are you saved and hath raised us up together and has made us sit together in heavenly places. Together, together, together. We are together with Christ. Now there's three words there. We are quickened, we are raised, and we are made to sit. Now I'm going to flex on you just a little bit. That is the Greek aorist tense. How many of you does that impress? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone bring their Greek New Testament with them today? The original language? No, no one. Okay. I'm impressed by it. Because what the Greek aorist tense indicates to us is this. Spiritually speaking, these things are already done. These are already done for us in Christ. So if we know Jesus as our Savior, we were dead but we have been brought to life by Jesus. We're quickened. That is already done. We are raised up with him and made to sit in heavenly places. And three times, together, together, together. We are brought from death to life together with Christ. We are raised up together with Christ. And we are made to sit together in heavenly places. Which means God is not bound by time. So where God is, he already sees it as completed. He sees us, unbound by time, as already seated together in heavenly places. We're saved, we are raised, we have conquered death, and we're together in heavenly places for all eternity. Here's the simple application to that. If we can't get along together here and now... What does that indicate or tell us about eternity from where God is seated, we're together forever? Now that's terrifying, isn't it? Take a look around. Together forever. You say, well, I don't really like them. Yeah, but God loves them. Yeah, but they're really different than me. Right, but when he comes, we shall be like him. And when we are like him, we have the idea of unity. One of the most damning things that can happen within a church is that people can be divided on all kinds of idealistic lines, not recognizing that one day we'll all be together forever in heaven. And you can't have a ba- actually can't have a bad attitude about it there. And if you can, it indicates you're probably not going there. And you can have a bad attitude down there all you want. You can fume and fuss. In fact, fume's one of the key things that happens. You can scream and shout. I've read verses about it. You can gnaw on your tongue. You can beg for water. You can do whatever you want as far as that is concerned. Corrupting for eternity, but never corrupt. But listen, together forever, that is God's intention. That's literally the explanation of Scripture. Like it or not, we're together. One of the things that can happen in a church like ours is over time, inevitably, you have different factions of believers within the church. 
You have some that have been here a long time. You have some that have been here a little bit of time. You have some here that have moved from the north, the audacity. Some that have moved from California, even more audacious than those that come from the north. You have some that have left in a group from a church where things have changed. And you have others who have been reached by the blood of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. And what can happen over time is we align ourselves within the body along factional lines. And we miss out on what God intended the church to actually accomplish together. Because together we have increased productivity and together we have increased comfort and together we have increased potency. But because we know better than God knows, we divide ourselves along all kinds of idealistic lines, damning ourselves to a less than existence because God's assessment is together is better. You say, so we should swallow All lines of distinction within Scripture and just be unified. No, we should all be like Jesus and we should protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yes, we should be together. There shouldn't be one person in this church that is outside the bounds of your empathy. Not one person in this church that is outside the bounds of your compassion. I don't like clicks. No one likes clicks. No one likes clicks. No one likes to come in and feel like they've got to chisel their way in to a circle of friends and no one wants them there. That is the antithesis of the New Testament church. I see it happen one time in the New Testament church. It's when the apostle Paul shows up at the church of Jerusalem and he wants to join in with the believers there, but they don't let him join in. Mind you, they didn't know he was saved. He was a murderer just a few days before and they didn't want him to be a part. But I'll tell you, too many churches are icy ponds. Too many churches are groups of cliques. Too many churches have comfort circles and not enough reaching out. You should know more names than you know. I said this to the early church service, and I see that the early church. We've got a divided church already. <laughs> Heesh, I just got myself in trouble. The older that I get, the more unabashedly I can say things. I just wonder what my 60s are going to look like. I've been pastoring 19 years. I've seen some things, so I get to say some things. I've seen a few situations. I've seen some stories unfold, so you can say a few things. Listen. You are not better than anyone else that is in this room because you were here longer than they've been here. You don't have club or concierge level access. That's not how it works. And we could take you to the parable that Jesus shares of those who work for the first hour and those who arrive at the 11 hour and they all get the same pay and it kind of ruffles some feathers and Jesus basically says, don't worry about it, you agreed to it. You are not better than others in here because you have attained or broken into some level of spirituality that they have not yet attained. That's not how it works. We're together in this. And I say you should know more names and you should know more stories and you should serve more than you do. No spectators within the church. Here's the reality by the time we get to verse 20. 
speaking of the church, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul's mixing metaphors. He likes to mix metaphors. Earlier we were a family and now we are a building. But the idea is we're all together, 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 fitly framed together. Every part accomplishes its purpose in God's plan. More and more parts come in and it grows. More and more believers brought and fitted into the building. Every believer within the building is part of it. And expected to fulfill its function within the building. Every believer is a laborer. A laborer who is expected to be busy adding on to the building of the church. All bringing new stones and fitting them into the great building of God, the church. You can sit it out. But togetherness is a principle that is all through scripture. You can be a maverick. You can know more than others know. But if you aren't doing your part, you're failing. Churches don't gather for pragmatic reasons. We gather because that's essential to the nature, to the purpose of the church. We don't just assemble because we've got to check the box. We assemble so that we can provoke unto love and good works and exhort one another. You aren't aren't on the basketball team if you never show up for practice and never show up for any of the games. You may not know this. It's been a recent happening. I am a part of the Charlotte Hornets organization. I'm a player. Anyone believe that? If I were to go to the stadium today and say I want to be a part of a winning organization, they'd probably say, well, this ain't it. But I would try to get in the player's parking lot, and they would say, sir, you don't have access to the player's parking lot. I know, but these are really great parking spaces, really close. No, you don't have access. You're not on the team. But I just want to go in and I want to have access to the court. I want to be down there. I want to sit down there. I want to be on the team. But you're not on the team. And someday in the distant future, when they inevitably win and they raise a trophy, I can't come from my home in Matthews onto the court of the stadium and say, Woo! Woo! We did it! What did you do? It! With you! Hold the trophy. I'm here. You're not on the team. I'm here, but you're not on the team. Did you show up to any practices? No. Any, Any game? No. Any minute or second of playing time? None. None. I just want to be here when we raise the trophy. Now listen, all of us understand that analogy. And it may even sound like a scathing rebuke, and I don't intend it to. I'm trying to direct us all to what Scripture says is better, and that's togetherness. What God is doing in this place is special. What is yet to unfold in this place, no one person nor small group can do. It's going to take everybody together to get it done. And we shouldn't say we're participating in the church's mission if we never gather. We shouldn't expect to raise the trophy if we're never on the court. The reality is we have to reassess what it is that matters to us. You can live in isolation. You can be a maverick. You can know more than others. You can create factious lines, but it's better together. Not because I say it or I'm trying to build an empire. It's the principle of Scripture. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment?
Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.